This week on the podcast, Metroidvanias, how good Metroid Dread is, how bad Metroid Dread is, and Pachinko. That's right. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Brave Room. It's special because this time I didn't count us in using Tank from Cowboy Bebop because we were literally just talking about Cowboy Bebop. Hey, so who, who are you and what are you doing on my show? I'm Alex. I I write stuff. That's right. We got about it. Alex Cookie Run Briggs back on the show because he works here and Kit is having some technical issues that make recording. Get a- back. Yeah, I like to think that this podcast is the Eric Andre show, and you, Ben, and Kit are like just three Hannibals standing in the corner that we ro- that we rotate yeah. out. Every now and again. Yep. Now Kit is off to go evict someone. I guess. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the deal is with Hannibal Buress. Apparently, he's a jerk. Question mark. Hannibal Buress, the the dude from the Eric Andre show. Hannibal Buress. I remember his name. I can't remember. He did. I think he's the guy who managed to out Bill Cosby. Is that the thing he did? Hell of I know. When we're definitely not breaking the news here. But yeah, no. How how you been, Alex? How how you been? This is a slow episode this week, so we can take all the time we want to just, like, chill. There, uh, not much. Uh, before this, I ate a whole tube of Oreos, and now I feel really bad about it. But other than that, I'm mostly okay. Okay, dude, hold on. Oreos, right? How is it? Yeah. The Oreo cookie is the worst form of Oreo. Like, not because it's bad, but because Oreos feel so good in every other form. Oh, you mean like cookies and cream ice cream and stuff like that, which it's in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cookies and cream ice cream, amazing. Oreo milkshakes, amazing and bad for my waistline. Uh, there's, yeah. I don't know if you have it in the UK, but there's this ice cream sandwich in the shape of a giant Oreo. Yeah, we have them. Amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was, there was one, like, I always wanted to get one when I was staying in the UK as well. But, you know, you're in the UK in the winter. What the hell are you doing buying an Oreo ice cream for? I don't know. Oreos are just one of those things. When you when you open them and you have one, you just have all the rest of them. Right, right. I have no memory of eating the middle Oreo in a tube because, like, I just black out. And when I'm when I come to, like, my mouth is covered in Oreo crumbs and I'm out of Oreos. Pretty much, yes. It's it's probably not the best, but what are we gonna do? Yeah, and it's one of those things too, where like Oreo imitators tend to be just as good. Like, there's a lot of legally distinct Oreo brands out there. There's one of them where the center is chocolate instead of cream, and it's real good. I like the cream, it balances out the chocolate sort of sides, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's to make the the chocolate knockoff ones, the cookie itself doesn't have much chocolate in it, so that's why. At this rate, this is going to be an Oreo cast. Like, hey, Oreo, sponsor this podcast. And hey, you listener, leave a comment, because we have we get a thousand plays, I should take one of your terrible, terrible suggestions. And maybe we could do an entire Oreo episode. I don't know. Maybe. Why not? But yeah, no, Oreos are great. <laughs> mm. I really want an Oreo milkshake and all. Yeah. I don't know, I think I'm done for Oreos today. Too many at once. No, the, the one thing that puts me off Oreos is a bad Oreo McFlurry. So the ones in Malaysia, like because they're not paid nearly enough uh the mcdonald's stuff sometimes they'll just it's literally just vanilla ice cream with an angrily crushed oreo sprinkled on it it's not like mixed properly and i'm like this isn't good 
This isn't good at I all. I, I assume that's what a McFlurry always was. I mean, back in that's the kind day, of how I've always seen. <laughs> back in the day, we had standards for our McFlurry. There was an even distribution of chunk throughout the ice cream, and it was a delight. Now the ice cream's a bit too cold, and the crumbs are not evenly distributed, so you get one chunky spoonful and another that's just vanilla. No one wants vanilla ice cream. I'm trying to see how long we can go without actually talking about this week's assigned topic. Because, uh, yeah, admittedly, last week's topic got a little heavy. So I, I want I want this week's episode to be kind of brevitous. What, what, what did we do last week again? Last week, we talked about parasocial relationships. It was rough. Okay, I'm not going to question that. Yeah, I don't think anyone likes the topic being your favorite YouTuber may or may not be a creep. And here's how you protect yourself from them. Yeah. But hey, that's not this week's episode. In fact, this week's episode, I want to talk about Metroidvanias. Which I assume you have some experience with considering you played, you know, Metroid Dread. Yeah, I've played Metroid Dread. Um, I've also played a couple of the older Metroids. Uh, my main, the main, my sort of main experience with the genre comes more from the other bit of the name, the Castlevania side. Oh yeah, you're also uh, like a big Castlevania it. mark, yeah. Yeah, well, I've played a few of them, I guess. Yeah? Uh, so here's the thing, right? Here's how I got into Metroidvanias. So, many mm-hmm. years ago, Dark Souls 3 comes out. And then I finished the final DLC for Dark Souls 3 and there's an interview with Miyazaki and he says no more Dark Souls. And my life fell into an abyss. <laughs> I was like, what can I do without more souls in my life, right? And so I started looking for 2D souls-like experiences. And basically, they tend to boil down to either Zelda-likes or Metroidvanias. And that's how, that's how I fell into the hole. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting. I mean, for me, it's just, I don't know, I saw Samus and Smash. Figured I'd try that out. Yeah, no, I really, right? want, I really want to try Metroid Dread, because apparently, like, they're saying it's the most accessible of the Metroid games. The big thing with Metroid, I find, and part of the reason I think it, it to be honest, hasn't sold as well as, it, as people wish it would, is that, yeah, I mean, the big problem with the Metroidvania genre in general is it can also be known as the uh, where the f*** do I go genre or the get lost in the same four, five rooms for three hours genre. Yeah, so, yeah. And Metroid in particular is very bad at that. A lot of the ways to progress involves, oh, there was this tiny hole in the corner of the room that you needed to shoot to get to the next bit. So yeah. that can sort of put people off. Of course, if you're for fans, that's part of the whole excitement, you know, you explore, you uncover the secrets, but that's also sort of what stops it from bringing in that sort of bigger user base, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That, I think that's the biggest problem with any kind of, like, niche genre, is that the appeal will always never, like, will always put the mainstream people off. Like, it was, like, it's so weird when I have to describe, like, my love for Souls games to people. Because they'll be like, you spent the past three hours dying to a boss. How was that fun? And I'm like, because by the end of three hours, I could reliably get them to phase two. <laughs> you know? As a, and yeah, definitely Metroidvanias, like the backtracking in Metroidvanias is like, you either love it or you don't. Yeah, pretty much. And the thing that sort of Dread does right is that it's a little bit more... Uh 
for better or worse, at least the earlier sections are a lot more compartmentalized instead of just big open world map. It's like, it's kind of cut off into little sections that are a bit more manageable. And uh, yeah, that's sort of the main thing. So it's a bit easier to deal with. And like, I get, it's one of those things as well where like, you know, a lot of like, let's call them legacy game genres, right? Where mm. their obtuseness is for many people part of the appeal. Like, you know, if Dark Souls had a proper guided tutorial, I'd rip my hair out. And so a lot of people are like, no, Metroid, Metroid has to stay obtuse like this because that's part of the appeal. And then I was just watching Adam Sessler's review of Metroid Dread where he's like, no, it doesn't. Please make it, you know, please make the games more human, more legible by humans. I don't know. The thing about Metroid is it technically is very accessible. I mean, in terms of actually controls, you run and shoot things. There's nothing really difficult in regard to, like, combat or anything with Metroid. I mean, the bosses are hard as hell, but there's no, it's not like it's really a confusing game. It's just, you know, it's a game that encourages you really to just check every nook and cranny of this world, which isn't a bad thing, but, you know, you have to sort of really commit to it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. When, when you say that, I keep thinking of... <laughs> blasphemous like that is the first game where i where it really clicked in my brain i'm like oh this is the metroidvania experience because that game is cruel in how obscure it is there's uh like you know because a huge part of the metroidvania genre is obviously the power-ups right yeah yeah like you will always find a room that clearly needs something to interact with it but you don't have it yet and so yep one of the things you see is these very distinctly colored plant vines. And you're like, oh man, how am I going to get the power up to, to interact with these, right? And you play through the whole game and you never find it. And you're like, what the hell? So you go to a wiki to look it up. And it turns out it was this weird subquest that is like a multi-step subquest that ends in you getting the power up that lets you control the vines. And at no, you have no way of knowing what the item was that triggers this quest, what the next step is. And that's just one of the tools in the game. <laughs> so yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I get what you mean. Uh, I don't think Metroid's that hard, but on the other sort of end of things, I've always felt that the Castlevania games, at least the Metroidvania ones, they were a bit on the more manageable side. I mean, they could be hard too, but... Uh, the First of all, there's a lot more weapons, I find. I mean, I mean, Metroid, you get weapons. Castlevania, they have a sort of RPG weapon equip system. And the rooms are very, are much more clear about just where you can or can't go. So it's usually easy to find your way around. And once you get a new power-up, it's a lot easier to remember, oh yeah, there was that thing back there, I can go try this out. So, yeah. I, I don't know, that's part of why I've always preferred Castlevania to an extent, just because partly I prefer the sort of gothic horror aesthetic to the Metroid sci-fi aesthetic, but I don't know, it, was always, it always just felt a bit more, I guess relaxed wouldn't be the word, but it just a little less uh, obscure, I suppose. It, it definitely feels that way. And on, on the aesthetic note, I do kind of find it funny that like any type of game that straddles the Metroidvania slash Souls-like line has to now have it has to have the gothic horror aesthetic like that's almost one of the unwritten rules i do kind of like here's the thing metroid 
even though it doesn't look it, feels Geiger. Feels very HR Geiger. It's probably an ex- inspiration. I mean, I think the original Metroid was heavily inspired by Alien, uh, to the point where Ridley was named after Ridley Scott and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's always been my, like, why I wanted to check out Metroid, but, you know. I'm very late to the Nintendo party, let's just put it like that. <laughs> the only Nintendo franchise I played growing up was Pokemon. I mean, to be fair, I'm a Nintendo fan, and honestly, I've, I've played Metroids and I've played Zeldas, but I've never been a that super big a fan of either franchise. It's just, I, I acknowledge what they do, I acknowledge how good they are. I've played a couple games from them each, but it's just... I don't know, they never clicked for me as highly as other people, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I never understood those people who are like, Nintendo's like, defines my life. I'm like, chill, chill out there, buddy. But yeah, no, I think for me, like, and, I, and the reason I keep tying it back to the Souls games is because I do think, like, the Souls game is the closest you get to the 3D Metroidvania. Like, mm, that's man. an interesting way of putting it. That's an interesting way of putting it, because, I don't know, most people think, like, Metroidvanias are, like, completely just indie games nowadays like you know most uh, the bit most of the big developers don't really do that kind of style games but i suppose in a way you can say the souls games are very metroidvania but, you know they're also kind of hmm? well maybe not souls games but souls like games i suppose yeah well okay here's the thing though within the souls games themselves i should specifically point out it's my favorite souls games are basically 3d metroidvanias because dark souls 2 and bloodborne are totally that those two games are all about backtracking and finding like useless things that open the path somewhere else. Like Chalice Dungeons. To unlock Chalice Dungeons, you have to kill the Bloodstarved Beast. Bloodstarved Beast is a completely optional boss in the completely optional area of Old Yarnum. Mm. You you go through Old Yarnum. To get to Old Yarnum, I think you have to buy a key, which is like so it's like there's no indication that that's why you go to Old Yarnum. It's literally just, eh, I bought a key for this door. The door took me to Old Yarnum. I fought through Old Yarnum, made it to the end. There was a boss. And the boss, I killed the boss. I got a weird chalice thing. And now I have half of Bloodborne's content. <laughs> and uh, that's the whole reason that I gravitated towards the Metroidvania genre is that I love that feeling of wandering around and finding something. And it's weird. Yeah. It's it's weird because uh, anyone who's had the misfortune of sitting next to me in the office knows that I have a well documented dislike of open world games because I don't think those games do enough to help you wander. You know. I get what you mean. I probably. I guess my problem with open world games is after a while, I just. I guess I just find them. I wouldn't say boring, but I don't know. I like. I'll just say when I was playing Ghost of Tsushima, for example. And I have to go from one place to another on the horse. And I'm riding for a solid 15 minutes just on this horse getting to this next place. Yeah, the traversal is boring, And I And I just get here, please. How long do I have to be on this damn horse? (laughs) Yeah, I had had the same problem. I love the horse. I had the same problem with Far Cry 6. Uh, You know, a game that I liked. Oh, I had a problem with Far Cry 4 with that. That was the only Far Cry I ever played. It was just, I just want to get to the place. Yeah, exactly. I just like I the FOV in Far Cry Six is so bad. You get motion sick, so I just set the car to auto drive me to the next location. But now, like it's going not very fast. It's a long journey. So what do I do? I check my real life phone, and now I'm out of the game 
because you know I'm checking text like waiting for someone on Tinder to text me back or something. It's uh, it's not ideal. That's like the only open world I think I've ever like 100% enjoyed was Death Stranding, and that's because the traversal is the gameplay. I can see that. Um, that means that I think the one open world I really actually liked was Zelda Breath of the Wild, and that's precisely I guess because. Um, the traverse, for one, the landscape is interesting. It's not just ride the thing to get somewhere. There's just cool stuff to do along the way. Also, uh, the game sort of knows that not everyone wants to do everything in the entire world. So it just kind of goes, okay, so there are four places you should go before you head to fight Ganon, the final boss. So you should, we're going to mark them very clearly on your map. So if that's if all you want to do is the main story, just go to these four places and you're good. Like that's honestly a really helpful and accessible way of doing open worlds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely better than what Genshin does, anyways. But yeah, and on on that topic of open worlds as well, it's also just like because technically Dark Souls One is an open world. Oh, yeah, I've got to show Dark Souls One is also basically a Metroidvania. Because it's got this huge, like, you start at Firelink Shrine, there are many roads out of Firelink Shrine, every single one takes you to a different zone. Like, that's just such a good level design, like, you can't warp in Dark Souls 1. It's the only, the only Souls game that you cannot warp until halfway through the game. And because of that, you know, because you're going to spend so much of that time on foot, guess what? Traversing that world is interesting. Like, you know, it's... Uh, you know, a lot of open world games are about having those big fields, right? That you that you move through. There's yeah. none. There's none of that in Dark Souls because you know hardware limitations. But so because of that, instead, it's just imagine like those tile-based board games where you have to set up like dungeon tiles, but just huge. And it feels really, really good to do that. And I think that's always been what's you know what makes me like the Metroidvanias tend to do that more versus your open world game. Or it's like, yeah, oh, I mean, look, look at how huge this map is, but there's nothing there to Pretty much. Um, actually, it is interesting, because I guess Retrovanias are kind of like 2D open world games, to an extent at least, in that big map. Uh, they don't really have side quests, though. I guess that's the main thing. I guess uh, you could argue... Yes? Well, at least not that I can remember from the ones I've played, but... Yeah, yeah. It, it depends. Again, Blasphemous has them, but like everything related to Blasphemous, it's obtuse as shit. Do you know how to get the true ending for Blasphemous? It is so freaking dumb. At no point does the game tell you this. So at the very start of the game, a dude gives you a thorn. And if you read the thorn's item description, it says something like it grows with your sin. So every time you die in Blasphemous, you leave a guilt somewhere in the world. And there is... Uh, stat there are statues in the map where you can pay your souls to reclaim all your guilt and so you because uh, I think it's like your max health goes down as well or something like that I don't remember it's been a while since I played Blasphemous anyways every time you die if you equip the, the thorn it grows like it grows into a thing hold on sorry I might have mixed this up actually let me look this up real quick but because I may I may be mixing up my Pointlessly obscure blasphemous uh, side quests. Blasphemous true ending guide. 
My mistake. You get a bead called the Immaculate Bead. Equip it and die three times. So it turns into the weight of true guilt. Then you have to go to those statues, the guilt statues that I was telling you about, and destroy them. At no point does the game tell you you can destroy them, but you have to. And then when you destroy them, it unlocks a dungeon. You clear that dungeon. And when you do, then the thorn that you get will change. And after you've destroyed every single statue in the game and cleared the related dungeon, then you just beat the game like normal and you get the true ending. And no problem. <laughs> Sir, it's so obscure. It reminds me of one of the Castlevania games. Uh, to get the true ending, you need to have five, uh, no, three specific weapons that you get randomly from certain enemies. So you just have to be lucky enough to have those equipped on you when you're fighting like the second, the boss of the normal ending, basically. God damn. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I I always think like my, like, I love true ending requirements. Like for as much rage as Blasphemous as one causes me, you gotta admit it's kind of baller. <laughs> well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I like them too. I guess it depends on what you have to do to get one. Like, uh, I mean, some, I mean, some games getting the true endings is just not worth the time, and some of them it's just, oh, you an answer this one question right and you're good to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't like, like, 100% everything uh, endings. Like, I like it when they're tied to a quest. Uh, I'm trying to think, like, which... Which games? Lightning Returns, I think the true ending for that basically is impossible to get unless you do a new game plus run. Because that mm -hmm. game had the whole Dead Rising thing where you were meant to, you know, complete as many quests as you can before the clock runs out. And if you do it well enough, you can buy more time on the clock. So if I remember correctly, the true ending for that required was basically mandatory that you did it on new game plus where you had enough stats. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think, like, what else? I love Bloodborne's true ending. Bloodborne's true ending quest is pointlessly obscure, and I love it. What do you have to do for that one? So basically, there are four items called third umbilical cords hidden in the world. Uh, you have to eat three of them. You need three of them, and there's four in the world. So, uh, eat three of them, then... At the end, of, spoilers for Bloodborne. Uh, at the end of the game, after you kill Murgo's Witness, who is the last mandatory boss of the game, you talk to German, the first hunter. This happens no matter no matter which route you're on. He will offer to either kill you, and like you'll wake up with no memory of any of this happening, and get to live your normal life, or you can reject him and fight him. So what do you do? You you tell this old man in a wheelchair, put up your dukes. We'll go, let's go. And so you fight German and you kill him, obviously. So in a normal playthrough, that's one ending where you kill German. However, if you've eaten the three umbilical cords, as you learn from various item descriptions, your body starts to like become more and more like that of an old one. And so the Moon Presence drops down and you have to do one more fight against the Moon Presence. 
and when you uh, when you kill the moon presence, you become a squid. You become a baby great one. And the doll comes and picks you up, and the last scene is her cradling you as a little squid thing. I see. Makes sense. <laughs> and again... Why not? At no point does the game tell you. It hints you in on the umbilical cords, I think. Like, there's one that's really hard to miss, if I remember correctly. And the description will tell you that, like, oh yeah, you get a, a ton of insight for eating the umbilical cords. And also, like, yeah, you know, the people who do this are said to become closer to the old ones or whatever. But yeah, my favorite thing is that uh, back when the vaccination program started, like, people were making jokes about it. Like, oh, if you get all three doses, then you get to fight the moon presence. <laughs> sure, why not? Yeah, I'll, uh. I'll get vaccinated and turn into a squid. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, it's about it's a, it makes about as much sense as having five G injected into you or whatever else. Yeah, at least were at least this one's a Bloodborne reference. <laughs> so yeah, no, I love the true ending for Bloodborne. Dark Souls doesn't really have a true ending like the Dark Souls games. They just have a ton of endings. Dark Souls One mm. was reject the fire, embrace the fire, whatever. Dark Souls Three was like the fire is like super dying, so. The, the most obvious route was, hey, you lit the fire again. You gave yourself to the fire and whatever. Then you had the... What was it? I know there's one of them was this stupidly elaborate quest for Londor, where you become the Lord of Hollows. Basically, you take the fire's power for yourself and become King of the Hollows. Okay. And then ah. there was one more ending where... There's one branched ending, so you could... If you got the Firekeeper, because fire, the Firekeepers don't have eyes, but if you give her the eyes of another Firekeeper, she would learn the truth about the fire. And she never tells you what the truth is, but she turns to you and says, Yo, we gotta put out the fire. Don't let it continue. So when you kill the Soul of Cinder, summon me and I'll, I'll get the fire. And the branch is here. So after you kill the Soul of Cinder, you summon her. And she will sit next to the fire for a bit. And this is like in-game, not in a cutscene. And the screen will slowly fade to black. If you let it fade to black, you get what my favorite ending, which is you and the Firekeeper romantically watching the fire die. Because she's like, yeah, no, whatever, fuck the flame. But you have full control when the screen is going black and you can swing your weapon. If you swing your weapon at her, you get a second ending where you turn on her, essentially. Like... The ending is still the same, the fire dies, but you, you're you also a to the firekeeper. That sounds mean. Yeah, I, I don't like watching it because you like, you literally like step on her head and stuff. And I was like, why would you do that? The firekeeper is so nice. <laughs> so yeah, no. People will, argue, people will argue over what the true ending of, of Dark, Souls, Dark Souls 3 is, but whatever. Does Dread have different endings? No, I don't think any. Actually, okay, well... Nintendo is a bit naughty here, but in the old games, the main difference ending is, uh, so at the end of every game, Samus takes her power suit armor off, and you, and depending on how fast you beat the game, you'll see her in various amounts of clothing. They don't do this in the modern games, though. Yeah, graphics are too good. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Damn. Um, I think, you, I think, it, I think you might see her in the Zero suits, but not the, uh, not the more skimpy ones he got back on Super Metroid or stuff like that. Uh, the ones that are literally just like a bikini. Uh, and... Yeah, pretty pretty much. 
I know in Smash they told him where, but yeah, yeah. It's something like that, basically. Yeah, 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 dude. Like, here's the thing, right? I've never understood the appeal for Zero Suit Samus because, like, Varia Suit Samus is kind of hot. I do think, like, once it became, because remember, Samus being a woman was supposed to be like a big twist for the original Metroid games. Oh, the first one, yeah. Yeah. So once that stopped being a thing, like once they had more, more pixel space, like they really sexed up that Varia suit, man. Look at that tiny cinched waist. Yeah. It is certainly heated, I suppose. Like, yeah, yeah, no, that's that is a curvy robot suit. Like, if you showed someone modded Samus, I can't imagine someone still thinking that's a dude. Yeah, I see. I do see what you mean, but I don't know. I guess. I guess nowadays it's not really that, uh, I mean, I guess it's not really a secret anymore, but I don't know. And I think in the Prime games, it definitely still looks very ambiguous, but uh, actually even in Dread, I probably couldn't be able to tell, but, and I guess it depends on the game. Actually, I do feel like that as well, because like, you know, I've known about Samus for like years, years now, like, oh my God, it's almost been two decades since I was first introduced to Metroid. Okay, yeah, Prime Tree, Prime Tree Samus could be, uh, you know, a generic space marine, I guess. I guess. Mm. But no, I, I feel like I spend too much time in the horny corners of the internet. Probably both do. It's cool though. Yeah, yeah. Also, like, just in general, like, I feel like those of us who do not live our lives bound by shame, we forget just how sheltered the normie crowd can be. Like how yeah, probably. they literally wouldn't know Samus was a girl unless, you know, she was wearing a skin-tight latex suit with heels and a ponytail. Any one of these is missing, it's ambiguous. Samus becomes the first androgynous Nintendo character. <laughs> <laughs> She's well, gone. there have been people... See ya? I don't know. There was, I remember back a while there was like a serious uh, argument that she was like, you know, transsexual or something, but it never stuck, thankfully. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it didn't stick. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd need to do more research into that before before commenting on that. But yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the best place to end it. Horny Samus talk is probably the best place to end any podcast. All podcasts. Sounds about right. But yeah, I never understood what Dark Samus was, by the way, other than you know, an echo fighter. Uh, from what I understand, Dark Samus is a is actually a Metroid. Uh, actually, Dark Samus was Metroid Prime. Like Metroid Prime was uh, some sort of I don't know advanced Metroid or mutated Metroid. You fight you fight at the end of Metroid Prime One, but it survives and it fuses with DNA from Samus's suit. That came off in the fight to become Dark Samus. So yeah, that's 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 Dark Samus, Metroid Prime. Damn. Yeah. Also, yeah, we had this whole conversation about Metroidvanias. No, I'm sure someone in the comments is gonna be like, "Why did you mention Hollow Knight?" Because I want to play Hollow Knight, but I, I don't know the time. <laughs> I own sort Hollow of the one I was. What? It's it's sort of the one that it was. It was sort of the one I was thinking of when I said, "Oh, Metroidvanias are mostly like an indie." indie crowd sort of thing and i was thinking like hollow knight cave story um good thing and i can't i can't think of any off the top of my head now but you know what i mean yeah the, the one uh, I'm dead cells, those ones dead cells is not a metro van dead cells is a roguelike 
Oh, okay. I didn't realize. Yeah, I I was lured in by the same the same thing. I really wanted to be a Metroidvania, but it was uh, blood, Bloodstained. You know, Castlevania sort of. Bloodstained is literally just thing. legally distinct Castlevania. So yeah, <laughs> like oh my god. Not. Oh my god, that game is legally... I also played a Death Gambit recently, which is what made me bring up this topic, because Death Gambit is a game that really wants to be Dark Souls. Like, it is so aesthetically Dark Souls, and it's a pretty good Metroidvania as well. Like I, My only problem is I played it and Blasphemous within a year of each other, and so like I think Blasphemous is just a, well, a better put-together game, because uh, Death Gambit kind of like goes off the rails for a little bit in its theme, where it's like fantasy, but also there's a spaceship and you can get a gun. It's all over the place, whereas Blasphemous is like Catholic Catholicism. <laughs> That's the most powerful weapon that you need to get. Honestly, I'm sort of surprised Konami doesn't just let uh, Igarashi Iga just make Castlevania games, because it seems pretty clear they're just happy for anyone to work on the series as long as they don't have to do it in-house. That's kind of their MO now, but... Eh, whatever. I mean, what about Pachinkovania? Pachinkovania... Actually, Pachinkovania is a bloody shame, because the cutscenes and models on that look honestly super good. It's just that they're attached to Pachinkovania. I'm so glad that Ben is now going to have to add a chapter to, to this on the YouTube version where we talk about Pachinko games. Because, yeah, Pachinko games are... Have you seen the Pachinko Devil May Cry 4? Pachinko free. It's honestly just sad. Not, but that couldn't go into an actual remake. Not only do the cutscenes of Pachinko May Cry 4 look better than the game it's based off, it if you weren't like following interviews and stuff, it confirms that Virgil and Nero are related before like any mainline game does. Because there's a cutscene in there of Nero doing like his kata with the Yamato and Virgil's ghost next to him doing the same thing. See, I someone told me that they were related. Like I don't just on a, I don't know where. Just like on a forum somewhere. I didn't realize it came from that. It didn't come from wow. that. Like like okay, so it's heavily alluded to in Devil May Cry Four, because Nero literally says that he can hear Virgil's voice in his ear telling him to get more power, and then I think after that when. The idea was that there wasn't going to be a new Devil May Cry for a while. There was an interview, and I think it was Tsuno who came out and said, Yeah, they're related. And then one of the books also confirmed it. And f ever since then, it was just like kind of pocket trivia that people carried around. I was like, Oh, yeah, hey, do you know it was related? And then Devil May Cry 5 comes, and it's the big twist of 5, where, and the entire fandom's like, We've known for 10 years now. And I, I do kind of like that about Devil May Cry 5, because that was literally it, where Nero's like, Guys, guys, I have something important to tell you. Virgil's my dad. And the entire cast is like, we knew. No. <laughs> Everyone knew except you. I think that... But yeah, no, uh, Guilty Gear also did that. Like, the Guilty Gear Pachinko game is canon. Is Rick... <laughs> Information from that game is is important. I think most of it got repeated in XRD, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, most of it, but... Actually... Yeah? What I remember, what I remember out of Pachinko is it it gave like XArt style designs for a bunch of characters that still haven't shown up in the Guilty Gear since X games since X two. Like Bridget got a new design, Zappa got a new design. Wait, what? Uh, Hold on. 
I need to. <laughs> well, I need to look this up. Bridget Guilty Gear Pachinko. Yeah, what? <laughs> Vastage, right? That's the. Yeah, and they're pretty decent designs too. Johnny's Johnny got a beard in these designs, and they shaved it off for F for Xard. Ah, uh, Johnny doesn't have a Johnny doesn't have a beard. <laughs> that was his depressed yeah. face, and then when he when he got in as DLC, he jumped, <laughs> he shaved before. That was their condition. They let him in if he shaved. Ah, <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, no. The the main thing I remember. I hear about of oh, the pachinko is that like that man's name was first revealed in the pachinko. I know I'm. I don't know. They can call him whatever they want. I'm still calling him that man. <laughs> it's great. I, I just love how just dumb it is that you have all these big name government officials and who are we up against? That man. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. Who? Pachinko Dragon install looks cool. What the hell? I just found like a gallery with all the concept art and everyone looks really good. <laughs> Except Milia. Milia's character character art like cannot go backwards. Like she looks great in X art. She looks amazing in Strive. And so like I really honestly I prefer the X art in Strive designs. I don't know, they just look good. Oh yeah, I just saw Beard Johnny. Eh, he's fine. He's fine. I, I really like Exod Johnny. Dizzy is just kind of there. But yeah, no, that's... Yeah, Pachinko. I like how we went from Metroidvania to Pachinko. Why does Chip look so good? I'm still scrolling through this gallery. <laughs> Batman looks way better in Strive. Unfortunately. He's got well, the... I guess now hmm? Well, I guess now we've gone to a point where people can actually see his face instead of just hood, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. He looks like a freaking Organization 13 member. His uh mm. in in his old art, but now he's got the whole dragon god thing going on with the flower on his eye. But yeah, that's random. That was yeah. a turn for this podcast. <laughs> that was a freaking turn. We will have to title this episode Metroidvania slash Pachinko Talk. Anyways, thank you so much for listening, and thanks to Alex for coming on to you know sub in for Kit while she sorts out. Tech priests have been deployed to Kid's situation. We're prepping the sacred oils and we'll probably read a litany so that her tech issues will be fixed. That's for all two of the Warhammer 40k fans listening to this podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much. This has been another episode of The Brave Room. Don't forget to leave a comment. And hey, if you're listening to this on like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, why not just give us a rating? How about comment? Like comment on this episode. Tell us about how... It's tragic that the that Fatal Frame has a pachinko and not a new entry. At least it's not on Wii U. At least it's not on Wii U. God, God damn it, Koei Tecmo. Just remake Crimson Butterfly. That's all I want. They did. It's on the Wii. God damn it. Remake it again. <laughs> <laughs> remake it again. I just want... I just want... I, want, I grew up playing Crimson Butterfly. I, want, I just want to play Crimson Butterfly again. Made of Blackwater is kind of horny. I don't know if I want that in my Fatal Frame game. Made of Blackwater, only really... I, I, don't get me wrong, I want to play it, but I've heard about the ending, and the ending is a big no. Yeah, we'll, no. we'll save this, we'll, we'll save this oh, for a special yeah. Fatal Frame episode. Uh, this, sure. This, before Ben kills me for giving him yet another hour-long podcast. 
This has been an episode of Brave Room. Take care, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. <laughs>